Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Alrighty, episode 25 of Hashing It Out. I'm Dr. Corey Petty with my trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say what's up, Colin. What's up, Colin? And today, um, finally got someone from Status over to join us, but not necessarily working on Status, but a project within Status. So we'll let him explain it. We got Yuri Mateus, um, who works on the Embark code, for, uh, like the IDE for creating smart contracts and decentralized applications. And there's a tremendous amount going on with Embark uh, that I've noticed um, while working with Status. And I wanted to get him on to kind of explain what's going on, what it's used for, where the, the future holds off. So uh, Yuri, why don't you give us a quick introduction as to who you are, how you got kind of started in the space, a little bit of your background, and then what Embark is. All right, hey guys. Uh, so. Yeah, I work for sta- for Status and uh, the Embark framework. I'm the lead developer. I also work for the Ethereum Foundation. I'm part of the Remix team. We work on the Remix IDE and also related tools such as the the debugger uh, itself. Uh, I'm also a moderated moderator at uh, our Ethereum and our Ad Trader. I was one of the co-founders of Ad Trader too. Um, I was one of the creators of the DAO. Uh, and I've been in, been in space, Ethereum space, pretty much since the beginning, since the very early proof of concepts. And I've been following uh, Bitcoin for a long time. And so I, I started, I, what really caught my attention was uh, Namecoin, actually. Uh, and the reason the reason was, if you guys remember back in the day with the WikiLeaks censorship, so the first time that it was actually the, the WikiLeaks domain was censored, in the US. And this caught the attention of a lot of people, including myself, because uh, although we knew the system was centralized, we never really thought that any any sort of censorship would happen because the servers were in the US, so in a, in a you know, in a democratic country, so we didn't thought that that would happen. So a lot of people at that time, um, we, we were brainstorming how to do a decentralized uh, DNS. And turns out it was really hard. It's really hard to do. Uh, it, it's what it's what is called the, the Zoko's triangle, right? It's really hard to do to do a destroyed DNS, or was it at least? Which you can have a meaningful names, is decentralized and at the same time secure. And no one, no one could really figure out how to how to do a system that supported the the three properties. Obviously, there was things like Freenet. Uh, but they, they didn't support the meaningful uh, part, and so someone mentioned, "Oh, what about what about Bitcoin?" And we could use that, but and and, and use that to register domains, and and then Namecoin uh, became a thing. We became the first uh, altcoin, uh, and that what that was what really got me really interested because soon I realized that this Bitcoin technology could to create all sorts of uh, uh, decentralized uh, systems. And afterwards came the the Snowden leaks, and uh, in, in which revealed that things were actually way worse than anyone uh, could imagine, and it became very very clear that we need the decentralization. So afterwards, there was a, a lot of new blockchains all over the place. People would create a blockchain just for a specific specific purpose, uh, which is very problematic. But they would essentially fork Bitcoin, art, art code, whatever use case they wanted, and then release a chain. Um, and when it when I first over heard of Ethereum, uh, because they wanted to do something that, that was programmable, it was not hard coded, it was generalistic, I got really, really interested because that, that was like the perfect solution to, to really create 
decentralized uh, applications and decentralized systems. That's a, that's a, I think that's, that's a, a story we can all relate to in some way, shape or form, or at least the ones that have been around for such a long time. Um, how did you, how did you get started into like Embark specifically? Like what made, like, first off, what is Embark? And then how did you decide to, you wanted right. to create your own because you have other IDEs in the space. Why make a new one as opposed to, um, add on to the ones that existed then? So Embark was actually the first one. Uh, it, nothing existed before 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 that, and, and that's why I created. Uh, so I I I so when Ethereum was in, in a finally some stage that it could be usable, it was one of the proof of concepts. It was still really really hard to use. It, it was incredibly complicated. You you needed to to use this client called Allet Zero. Uh, it, it was very overwhelming. Uh, like a lot of different uh, options that didn't necessarily make sense. And you needed to compile the contract yourself, copy-paste the bytecode, put in this really weird dialogues, figure out what is the gas cost, um, copy-paste the ABI. You know, it was a, it was a very painful process. And there was no tools. There was no development tools at all. Uh, nothing existed. So, and I really wanted to do, uh, at the time, a, de a decentralized market. I wanted to, to experiment with the decentralized market. So I started to create a pipeline that would uh, facilitate developing. So it would automatically detect my changes, automatically deploy the contract, wait, get to the address, and it, it would just build a DAP for me. And, and, and then I realized, okay, this can be useful for others. So I, so I put it on Reddit and I call it Embark, mostly for lack of imaginations, uh, I thought embark into the into the eater <laughs> or to the into because that was the Mist browser. So I, I was I somehow just figure pictured this uh, this uh, ship, uh, actually a pirate ship. But anyway, that would uh, that would explain all the uh, all the spaceships. The <laughs> explain all the spaceships yeah. inside the Slack channel. Yeah, yeah. Later, later the, the sh that ship became a spaceship, <laughs> and. Um, uh, so, so that became quite popular. Uh, later, other tools came along, but I, I continued working on it, and and, and just uh, you know, at the time, uh, and until recently, pretty much on my spare time, I, I kept uh, I kept working on it. Uh, the, so the reason is because the the main goal of Embark is to is to create true decentralized applications, and by true decentralized, I mean that really leverage the entire uh, available stack for decentralized technologies. So we had two, we had two phases until now. The first phase was that people were just doing contracts. They were not even uh, caring about the, the UI. Uh, so at that stage, pretty much users were being asked to copy-paste ABIs and address into, into uh, a wallet application and, and just... And to participate in some ICO or something like that. Uh, now we're at the stage that uh, developers are actually creating UIs for smart contracts, but that's still not enough. We, we, to create really true decentralized applications, uh, they, they need to to leverage the entire Web3 stack, and and that means that they leverage not just the blockchain, which is the consensus mechanism, but also a decentralized storage mechanism such as Swarm and IPFS, a decentralized communication system such as a Whisper, and and since then we we'll, we also been adding other other uh, stacks. So ENS is uh, is one of them. So it's a, a naming decentralized naming, and uh, in the near future we're gonna add even decentralized uh, video stack and and uh, state channels and things like that. Yeah, I noticed there was actually IPFS streaming it was recently on a <laughs> on uh, yeah. subreddit. That's pretty cool. Um, no, that's awesome. And, you know, honestly, when I look at, when I look at this, it kind of reminds me back in the day when I was doing like PHP sucked, I need to use like a uh, code igniter and stuff like that to actually get an application that would interface with a standard stack of, you know, standard lamp stack stuff. And there's, there's a whole nother stack, like you called it the web three stack that, that uh, people just need quick and easy integration with. They don't necessarily need to know the guts of everything. So I think it's great that you're doing that. Um, so what, uh, what progress? Oh, go ahead. 
uh, right. I was just going to add that, and we did try to make it uh, flexible for for more advanced developers, but also very extremely easy for new developers. And we had we have an abstraction layer on purpose so that yep. uh, if the developer wants to switch from say Swarm to IPFS, it's just a configuration he needs to switch from. You know, IPFS now just delete that and you put Swarm, and you don't need to change any code in your in your application. It will just work. Yeah, that's exactly what the experience has been like with me. With most most open source frameworks, kind of go that route, and I think it's great that we're finally that Embark is finally sort of maturing in that space. I will I will full full disclosure. I gave it gave it a try. Um, last time was many months ago, and I kept running into a couple issues. But I hear that three point two is quite resolved um, and getting very mature in the way that it actually handles things. So I'll need to give it another crack because most of the stuff I'm building is my own custom stuff. Um, so getting a decentralized application going has been a chore each time there's a new project. I have to develop a whole new way of deploying and um, managing everything because I can't use the code from the previous project um, for you know contract reasons. But um, yeah, um, I, I think that's great. I think one of the things that uh, that interests me most is the, the way that it helps uh, with the deployment, meaning that um, it doesn't have a built-in mechanism for dealing with and managing the test networks, private networks, and then all the way to launching to the public network. It does, yes. It's, it, it supports... A... It had a really cool UI for, for just how all the services are run, and I thought that was just very neat. Yeah, we have this uh, dashboard that people uh, really, really love. We, we got a lot of good feedback about about that uh, dashboard. And we think it's even even more. So the, the the next version should should have an even better dashboard than the, than the current one. And you wrote about the contracts that um, it, it's something that uh, that the Embark team actually feels we we need to do a better job of communicating is that the the contra- the contracts configuration you describe the relationship between the contracts and then embark automatically takes care of deploying the contracts the correct the right way and if something changes you just need to change that configuration and embark will only deploy what's actually necessary to reflect that uh, graph that contract configuration that is a relationship that is configured now that's that's similar to what truffle kind of does but the difference is that you have to do actual code to sort of say, hey, this is how my migrations work within um, de- deploying these these contracts. It's basically Web3 code. Um, what are you doing differently to model this? Because uh, many times I found that actually deploying contracts through uh, the Truffle framework is not as straightforward as it seems it would have been, uh, just based off what I would intuitively feel in my head. Um, I don't feel like I need to write all that code just to get my contracts up, tested, verified, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of it's pretty much just standard input, standard output. Did it work? Okay, good. Um, what what kind of stuff are you guys doing on the configuration end to make it more streamlined and simple for people to deploy applications? Right. So, yeah, in, uh, in Truffle, it needs pretty much everything needs to be uh, declared explicitly. And Embark takes a more implicit approach. And then you have the option to be more explicit if you if you really want to, uh, but but we found that for ninety nine percent of the cases, uh, migrations are not really needed at all. Yeah. Uh, all people want is, is really to declare what contracts they have, uh, other contracts are related, uh, and and when you work, that's typically done uh, because uh, when you specify the contract arguments, uh, typically you want to put the uh, the address of another. Contract contract as an argument typically indicates that, that those contracts are dependent on, on each other. So when you, you when an argument, you just need to put, say, dollar sign, the name of the other contract, and Embark will automatically know that, okay, I need to deploy the other contract first, need to take that address, and that address will be the argument for, for this other contract. Oh, so it automatically okay. figures it out. It basically yeah. just because you have reference, it'll map out the the optimal tree of of deploying these things and go. Okay, there's dependencies here, dependencies here, dependencies there, which also helps when you're designing these contracts, especially if there's IDE integration with Embark, to say, hey, look, you've got a loop dependency. This won't even freaking work. Like, yeah, um, yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty nice. 
Um, or you need to resolve it some way by not declaring this necessary on the actual launch of the contract, not a dependency until after they're all launched or something like Correct. that. Yeah. yeah. And then you have other options. You can say you can in 3.2, for example, you can, uh, there's a director for each contract that you can choose to deploy or not based on some condition, mm-hmm. which can be calling an existing contract. Uh, you, you can, uh, well, you can of, of course decide what accounts to deploy to. You can, you can define a set of commands to run on the deploy of each contract, uh, which could be some setup or something that needs to be done when the contract is deployed. And you can run a bunch of actions after the entire contract is deployed. And we found that that works really, really well for the, the vast majority of projects. Uh, I don't want to say all projects because there might be some one out there that I didn't see that maybe this uh, <laughs> made this somehow limited. But all the projects we've seen, it, this, this fits pretty well. And and when you put side by side a, a truffle migrations with this kind of config, the config is way more straightforward, uh, way easier to understand and work with. That's fantastic. And and I think the, the, the thing to keep in mind here is that Truffle really just focuses on deploying the contract. So you're going to build a, a standalone application, and in it you might include Truffle and in your contracts and then include deployment mechanisms and say in say you're using JavaScript, um, yeah, Node.js, you would uh you would in your like I don't know, package.json or your yarn file, you would define a script which which says, hey. Um, here's how I deploy the contract. So if somebody pulls down your repo, they can deploy their own version of the contracts that way. But uh, there's no real pipelining there. There's no real way to get from from um, you know the uh, the the contract to the actual UI. Um, one of the things I ran into yeah. that was kind of difficult was I had to constantly copy over things like artifacts um, from from Truffle. What do you do in your framework to make the ABI accessible to the application? Right. So we, we automatically generate the, the application with the the ABIs, and the, we, we already initialize. So the, all the contracts are already initialized in the DAP. That's the approach we take. We also generate uh, s- separately uh, JSON files for each contract in case someone. Uh, wants to take that that output and, and just use it in a different way outside of the Embark pipeline. Uh, but but that's essentially the approach we take is that we generate the DAP already with uh, all the contracts uh, sort of available. So you just need to require them. And uh, so if you have a contract called Simple Storage and, you, and that contract deploys, then in your DAP, you just do import Simple Storage from uh, Embark contracts and and you have the, the Simple Storage um, contract object, which would be a Web3 uh, GS 1.0 object. So that leads me to the kind of a problem that I've run into is that when I'm developing this stuff, I'm actually also simultaneously doing some extra bug testing work on the smart contracts, meaning that the smart contracts aren't standalone, especially if you're developing a decentralized application. Your smart contracts are part of the application. You need to bug test them along with the application. Sometimes you find quirks that you need to adjust just because user experience changes or something like that. When you redeploy a contract, does it automatically update in the require? And does does is there any sort of versioning kept so that if you need to roll back to a previous version, um, you would know what that looked yeah, like? Yeah, it, it, it does. So it has a it has a file available for the user. It's called a it's typically named a chains.json, but it can be named whatever developer wants. And that and this file uh, it tracks for each blockchain uh, where each contract is. Mm-hmm. And takes into account the the arguments of the contract. It takes into account the bytecode, as well as the the chain itself, among other factors. So, meaning that if you so if you modify a contract, and that doesn't result in any actual change. So, let's say if you rename a local variable, the bytecode will will be the same. Mm-hmm. So, in that case, Embark will will detect. Okay, you change the contract, compiles, but it's actually nothing changed for in the blockchain in a blockchain connected so you will not deploy but if detects there is a change it, it will deploy it and if there's any sort of relationship so if there's an, another contract that is dependent on a contract that you just change 
then it will deploy that contract too. So it's quite smart in that regard. And then you can also configure this by environment. Uh, so typically uh, on the development environment, uh, you would have a changed JSON that is uh, not in source, not in source control. It's just for you. And then you might have a changed JSON that is configured for other environments. So when you work on a project with the other developers, uh, they can also take advantage of this feature. Meaning, if they're connecting the same private chain as you, or the or mainnet or or, or testnet, uh, then and they do a change, then you know they, they will see that oh, actually. Uh, my colleague already did this change. Embark already detects that nothing changed. I just need to redeploy. Oh, wow. Okay, that's very cool. So how do you make that connection between the other developers? What is the thing that's actually binding them together so that they know of each other's changes? So so right now, um, I thought this might change uh, in the near future, but right now it's uh, it, it's just a, a tracking file, which we call change, change.json, that's, that follows referring to. So it's a file that you put in source control and uh, ah, okay. it, can, it can keep track. Got you. So it's, it's all done through, through Git, for instance. Okay. Um, yeah. My turn. All right. But I got more questions. Are you me. sure you do? But I haven't been yeah. able to speak in the past 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious, like there, there's creating decentralized applications is really hard. There's a lot of, there's a lot to the stack. I mean, I, what people typically get introduced to this the space they go through and look up tutorials online and it's like hey, this is how you make a smart contract or this is how you do certain things with smart contracts and so on and so forth but like there's not a lot of really good tutorials for the, walking you through the entire stack going for, and then including other technologies like decentralized storage and whisper how are you how are you facilitating like people learning the entire thing or like what's been difficult um, in your experience building something like embark that enables the entire thing and then you get user feedback that maybe doesn't understand half of it. Coders can't write. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really great <laughs> question. And and uh, and in fact, we, we struggle with a bit, and uh, it, it's something we are aware we not we need to do a better job uh, because uh, Embark, you know, if you see the documentation, it pretty much assumes you know Solidity. It pretty much assumes you know Web three GS. And it assumes you understand how, how blockchain technology works, oh, and it makes a lot of assumptions. And and we're aware of that, and we're looking into, I don't know, ways to minimize that somehow. Uh, but yeah, it, it is a, it is a bit of an issue for newcomers because there's such a, a, a you know a, a learning curve that is just assumed. Uh, I think it's assumed as well because. Uh, so many developers have been in this space for so long and we see, we saw things evolve that we don't even realize that how much things have changed because we just took it in small, in small pieces uh, during this last uh, three years. But someone that's coming in now, yeah, it's a, it's a huge uh, learning curve. And there's no really good resources that I think go through the whole thing. Uh, so it must be a bit of a painful process. And yeah, we're, we're looking at ways maybe to include specifically Web3GS tutorials in the documentation, maybe some Solidity crash course, uh, just to bridge that uh, gap a bit. Well, I mean, honestly, you, your system is set up so well, especially with the dashboard, that it seems to me like baking tutorials on how to use your system along with tutorials on how to how to actually, you know, do some of this stuff. Uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I really liked when it comes to like this whole education side of things was these uh, crypto zombies. Um, yeah, yeah, that kind of methodology got a lot of guys that I know up to speed um, on what is solidity, just the basics of it. What are the, you know, some of the more fundamental terminology of just solidity but that could apply to all these other technologies as well. And, and um, I really feel like uh, there's Corey's dead on, like there's, you know, there's, there's a need there for that. So um, this could be its own decentralized app that comes bundled with the Embark framework, you know, um, just an idea, uh, but definitely cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this educational part—it's—it's uh, it's something we're very seriously looking at and looking ways for improving. And, and and games like Crypto Zombies and those other games that also was uh, pretty much almost like Dungeons and Dragons style and and uh, that uh, yeah, it looked like very fun, a very fun way to to get people uh, into Ethereum and and learning the basics. 
Uh, also, there's this other, like, so we've interviewed quite a few of these security frameworks. And for some reason, we went on like a security rant over the past couple of weeks. Yep. Um, and they all have like, they all kind of um, try and target a specific part of the pipeline for um, looking for vulnerabilities um, with smart contracts. Have you looked into any of these, any of these platforms for like including into the build process of deploying smart contracts to see like where standard like vulnerabilities lie like reentrancy bugs or things like that and have you all have you all looked at anything yeah uh, we have um so one challenge kind of is that a lot of these tools are in python and we're like in the, in the javascript uh, uh, ecosystem so it, a lot of it basically involves calling calling from gs directly the the command line uh it's it's so we're looking at ways to integrate this using uh, plugins and in Embark, because Embark has a, a very powerful um, plugin system, so you can you can extend it to to, to your to your liking. And um, so we've been looking at at integrating this sort of uh, this sort of tools. Uh, but I I I look I look at some of them recently, and it was not entirely clear to me if they could really benefit from plugins or not, because a lot of it seems to be Developers just call directly on, on referring some contract files and uh, and connect some nodes. So I don't know we're still looking at it. It's not entirely clear to me if integration with Embark would be beneficial or not. But uh, yeah, ideally we would integrate in a way that as soon as the contract deploys, it it uh, it runs the, it runs that kind of tasks and just says, oh yeah, you have a security issue here, you have a security issue there. But tools like uh, I think it was like Mutual. Yeah, Mithril. Uh, they look now. Yeah, those look more like tools that that you are more like uh, iterative, like right? You 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 try different steps. You try to find flaws. It's not exactly something um, automatic. Not yet, and that's why it would be very interesting if there was some sort of like that was able to be integrated into the pipeline. Um, so I deploy a contract and I automatically do a Mithril audit on it, uh, throwing alerts and warnings to a log file and reporting them to the screen so I could go, oh, huh, look, I have a reentrancy bug. Let me fix this. Um, yeah. That's that's kind of like, uh, you know, part, part of the whole thing is that um, you're building a framework and that that to me includes the whole, like, uh, flexibility of not only that, but you should be independent of those kind of auditing tools. So if you want to go with Mithril, that's fine. If somebody comes out with something better, it shouldn't matter. And I think your design approach really, really works well for that. So I look forward to seeing kind of how you uh, integrate security practices into the pipeline uh, in the future. Um, Cause I, I kind of feel like it's inevitable progression for what you're doing. Um, uh, so I guess uh, I, 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 I still have a ton of questions, Corey. You mind if I keep going? <laughs> Let me get one in real quick before you before you sure. go on a rant. Go ahead. Uh, let's see. Uh, so, what has been? How do I want to put this? Once again, doing this stuff is hard. Um, where do you see the largest um, across the entire space? Like, what's lacking the most for developers and tooling around um, building secure, decentralized applications? What needs to be built that? Um, is keeping people from from making the same mistakes they've made all over the place, or reusing code that doesn't need to be reused, or not reusing code that needs to be reused? Like, what would you say is the is the largest gaping hole of a problem in today's ecosystem? Right. So it's a great question, uh, and yeah, I think I think unfortunately the biggest gap is is really knowledge. First of all, I think it's just not being aware of the possible security issues. Namely, with uh, reentrancy bugs, uh, can be very easy to do. Um, I, I, I think for, I think that's for, first of all that's the that's the big one more than than tools themselves. Um, because even if we have the tools, if that's missing, it's sort of a showstopper there. Uh, the other thing that's better debugging uh, tools. Uh, that's also some, that's also still uh, missing. There, there's a lot of improvements recently in the last year, but we still can do a lot more. And this recent tools that came up, like uh, Mutual, they definitely help a lot too. But but I'd say actually knowledge, it, it, it is it is one of the big. I think that's a big issue. 
Cool. So uh, you uh, you had us. So I'll, I'll just let you know. So some of the early, when I, I'm an early early attempted user of Embark, I don't know if I was using a stable release or not. But there was a simulated blockchain that was in the system. Um, I, I don't know if that's still there. Are you using a certain test RPC, or is there some sort of? Are you agnostic to that, or how, how does how do how do you test this stuff? You know, you don't want to deploy on a even a private chain is sometimes just not rapid enough. What do you, what is the uh, what is the methodology for testing? Right. So we for testing itself we use a VM for 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 the normal development when doing a bark run. Our preference right now is is, is to run uh, Goiterium. However, uh, so in the old days we we're running Goiterium with uh, we call like a mining script. So that mining script with would activate the miner, but would not mine. It would actually monitor for transactions and would only mine when there was pending transactions. And also would mine to a minimal to a minimal amount uh, to achieve a certain balance. And these days we we still support that because uh, people like to use that for uh, private chains when they're sharing uh, some chain with a colleague, and and of course they don't want to kill their the computer mining one hundred percent. And but we have preference to use the minus minus dab mode of of Ethereum, and that's a proof of authority. It's not proof of work, so it, it's really really fast. And we have a preference for that because you're also developing on a real blockchain on a real AVM. And I I had I got countless complaints about uh, yeah I, I was working in test RPC and then. I switched to to get and it it all broke, and so uh, yeah we're we're not very keen on using a similar. We don't really encourage it. We do use for VM purposes uh, because for tests it's really uh, convenient, especially if you have a, a CI. But for development, we prefer a real Ethereum, Ethereum node. Uh, and historically, I mean, Embark also introduced the first testing uh, tools for for at least in JavaScript for. For Ethereum, and uh, in beginning, we're using a, a Python. It was, it was it was based on PyVM. It was kind of like a, a weird Python warp in JavaScript. So it was like a big act, but it made it work. Uh, then afterwards, um, afterwards there was a, there was test RPC uh, Python, uh, which was sort of something similar to that. Then Ethereum GS uh, VM came out, and that when, when that came out, I I, I develop um, uh, I, I develop a similar based on top of that called uh, Attersim. So so that was the that was a, a JavaScript uh, a JavaScript simulator uh, based on Ethereum GS VM, and later on that got forked into Ethereum GS Test RPC, and now it's called Ganache. So that's kind of like the whole history of it. And but we we yeah we're not very keen on VMs though because. Uh, again, they can they can cause a lot of issues uh, if you're trying to to develop as it's not a real blockchain. So, I've had that exact problem. I'll, I'll I would deploy on the test RPC. It would get clear to pass all my test cases, and then I'd deploy to my private network. And for some freaking reason, it wouldn't work, and it would blow my mind. It was like everything's configured the same. Everything looks the same. What's yeah. different here? Um, and yeah, I can't remember what the exact errors were each time, but it was it was always something quirky and uh you know and that's the space the state of the space right now it's kind of quirky yeah, i think still. we can all relate to that yeah, yeah. so yeah. i think that, i think that's great that you're not supporting you you really don't uh want to use uh you know uh test rpcs because i agree if you, if you can use the same client that you're going to be using in in production you're you're you stabilized everything or not client but you know protocol clients kind of attached yeah. to that in some degree i mean there's differences between say parity and and Geth, obviously, but uh, there's, uh, you know, using the same sort of system, uh, same sort of blockchain protocol, then you're, you know, you're better off as a developer. Yeah. So um, the the next question I have is uh, deployment. Um, you're deploying these dApps. Where are they deployed to? Can you deploy them to IPFS? And can you create a standalone version of the app that runs... Um, like an electron or something like, is there any, how do, how do you handle deployment? So you've got those contracts deployed, but how do you deploy the DAP? Can you deploy to IPFS? Can you deploy yeah. in an electron app and then distribute it as an executable? Like how do you? Yeah. So the, 
that is actually uh, it's essentially an upload. So because the DAP is a, is a, always a serverless a serverless uh, application, client side application, then it, you can just upload to, to something like IPFS and it will just will just work. And so in Embark you have this option you can do Embark upload, and if you have IPFS configured or Swarm configured, it will just uh, take the the DAP that was uh, generated and and just upload it there. So then other users can can access it. Yeah, and with uh, three point two, you've introduced quite a bit of uh, like pipelining with Webpack. Because uh, how how difficult is it to configure Webpack so that you could compile this down to like a nice single file to upload? Right. So yeah, in previous versions of Embark, uh, I mean, one of the issues we had is that uh, Embark had add as and had his own pipeline, and, and that's really great for for uh, beginners. Uh, but then for more advanced users, uh, they were not that happy about it because they wanted to do, say, optimizations or they want to use the Webpack uh, file for their own purposes. So uh, yeah, on 3.2, we revamped the pipeline a bit. We added this inject, inject and just inject the Webpack file uh, and then customize it the, the way they want. By default, we put a lot of options that are pretty similar to the create what you would expect in uh, something like create React app from uh, from uh, Facebook. And with this, we support two modes. We support a, a development mode, which generates uh, source maps. Another thing I was missing before that now it's available, or you can uh, or you can build in production mode. And if you do that, then uh, it takes longer to build, of course, but it generates way smaller um, a way smaller output. So it was something like four times smaller. So it's um, so this way, yeah, you have the best of both worlds. So beginners, they can, they don't need to worry about Webpack. They can just, it just works. More advanced users, they can then inject the, the Webpack config if they want, and and we support both source maps and much much smaller uh, builds, which is also ideal ideal for uh, decentralized storages, right? Like uh, like a PFS. Because the smaller the download, the better. Also, also mobile, because yeah, um, a lot of this also came from the need to have light dApps on on browsers such as uh, Status. So I noticed that you're supporting Viper, uh, which actually is a language I'm still pretty excited about, uh, but haven't really had an opportunity to really use all that much. Um, How'd that support go? How that? How does since you're abstracting everything away, was it a big deal to support Viper? Or was it fairly straightforward? And does it impact your dependency mapping at all? And how does that? How's your experience with Viper, Viper been? Right. So with the because Embark has this plugin system, it's it's actually super super simple to to add more compilers to it. Um, it 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 just becomes really a small extension. Uh, that you just register the type of uh, the fo- the file type, uh, and then you you point to the comp- to the compile function, and it has to return a specific object. And as 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 long as you can do that, you can generate an object that has uh, ABI bytecode and a few other properties. Then you can add any compiler. So we support not just Viper, we support also Bamboo, although that's in uh, that's in uh, separately in a, in, a, in a plugin. And uh, so it wasn't that big deals to support it, actually. It was really pretty straightforward. Uh, we had is that because it's in very early stages, uh, a lot of things uh, can break uh, easily. Uh, so the latest version, I think we had to update that to be compatible with the latest version of uh, Viper. And we still have, still have limitations. Like it doesn't, as far as I know, at least the last I check. Uh, it doesn't really generate, uh, say, source maps and things like that we could use for uh, things like code coverage, for example, or debugging. So it's still very early stages. So adding adding adding, adding support for it in Embark was actually quite easy, but in practice to, to actually use it day-to-day is still in early stages. Uh, but since, it, since uh, we like, you know, in Embark we like Alternatives. We like that developers have a choice. They're not stuck with some particular technology, or in this case, a particular programming language. We thought it was important to add support to it out of the out of the box, as a so it could have 
external plugin, but we opted to make an, an internal plugin. Uh, just to emphasize that, yeah, if you don't need to only use Solidity, if you want, you can use Viper. You can use it even together with Solidity. Yeah, you have that choice. So that's uh, that. That kind of brings me to another question I've had when when developing these frameworks. And since I haven't had the opportunity to speak to many framework developers in general, and I'm not just talking about decentralized application frameworks, just frameworks in general. When you're designing a framework, there's a kind of a responsibility to be agnostic to the user and to the the stuff the user is using. So you know, if you include Viper and Embark's really taken off, then that's sort of like almost like an implicit endorsement of Viper, isn't it? Um, since it's actually included as part of the main package. Um, how do you feel about your responsibility for curating um, technologies as they are integrated into main, main parts? And would you rather that there just be a community built up that can support things um, using the plugins that are already available or the plugin system that is already available? What is, what, what is your balancing act between those two approaches? Yeah, so right now, if we see a technology is uh, uh, usable enough to to at least do prototypes on, we we do include it. Ideally, as it is, as you said, uh, developers could just leverage the the plugin system and integrate their own technologies. Uh, things like, say, Store G come to mind, for example, they could easily be integrated with Embark using the plugin system. Uh, I think we're still lacking a community around these plugins. And I, I think a lot of it is due to uh, a lot of improvements that need to be done in the documentation. And we also need to communicate better what Embark can actually do. So I, I often talk to people who know about Embark, but then when I tell them what Embark can actually do, they, they're a bit surprised. And uh, that tells me that we don't do a good, a, job, a good enough job to communicate what the framework can, can actually do. And uh, so, so to so again, if there was a community around the plugins, that would be ideally uh, that would be the ideal scenario. But that's not the case right now. So a lot of tech we need to add uh, add ourselves. And uh, you have a good point about about uh, the endorsement. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess it, yeah, if we include it by default in a framework. Yeah, it could be seen as sort of an endorsement. Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't think that through too uh, too much. Uh, well, I mean, you're I, I, you're developers yeah. in the Ethereum ecosystem too. Why can't you be excited about something and add it on to the thing you're building? I mean, I, I feel like it's it, it's it's not that big a deal based on where we are in this space. It's just you're giving people options yeah. to use new technologies that they're probably also excited about. And in the process yeah. of doing that, you're helping the development of that of that technology because you're giving people access to it, which usually exposes bugs, which allows people to report things. And the majority of people who are using something like Embark have a really good idea on how to do those types of things. And it's, in my opinion, it's a it's a boost of the entire ecosystem versus a opinionated inclusion of a technology versus another. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, opinionated. So yeah. when I bring this up. I'm talking about integrating it into the core. Now, I mentioned that there is a plugin system, and and you, Yuri, mentioned that developers could develop their own plugins for Embark. But when Embark starts developing the plugins for other applications, um, that's when it becomes kind of a little different beast. Now they're in control over the uh, the the way that this uh, third party application that's separate from Embark or this third party tool. Uh, interfaces with Embark. So, uh, for instance, um, we talked earlier about Mithril integration. Okay, um, that is a consensus product, um, and um, you know, uh, if uh, Mithril were to be by default integrated into Embark, and Embark was by you know the leading um, coding framework, now Mithril is the leading security framework. Um, which is not competitive. And also uh, it removes, it puts, it injects Embark's voice into the Mithril development process, meaning that they are the ones actually developing the plugin for Mithril. It would be better the other way around that um, Embark has a hook that a security framework can develop a specific plugin for, and that would enable them to smoothly integrate with the Embark framework. 
Um, and then that also lowers their development costs. But uh, overall, I was just making a simple comment about how uh, a, the control of a framework is actually the control of an opinion. Um, and uh, I see a certain level of personal responsibility in framework developers to remain as agnostic as possible to tools that are outside of their direct scope. Um, but that is just an opinion and that is me soapboxing. So tell me to shut up. I would agree with a lot <laughs> yeah. of that, but I also, I don't really care. Like, like at this point in the game, um, I want functionality over choosing specific or worrying about choosing specific platforms. If it works and it helps developers get better code out, I don't really care who's doing it. And I, and maybe totally later on down the line, I mean, keeping that in your head and making sure you're not playing favorites, granted it is a status product. So if status developed something, I'd imagine it would get included in Embark. But yep. like, I, mean, I don't like, is it, okay. It, with the security example, well, I can yeah. see that being a thing because that's a that's a yeah. horizon um, development technology that's wrought with a lot of money and a lot of competition. For what about identity money. frameworks? Well, you have this kind of you issue with, with consensus, right? I mean, uh, consensus, when they develop any sort of tools, their first priority is to integrate with their own tools. And everything else is uh, secondary to that. Uh, and that that can be also a challenge to, to external uh, external tools uh, outside of consensus that we pretty much have to play catch up because develop mutual their first priority is to actually work with Truffle and then everything else is uh, is uh, secondary. So those kind of uh, sort of conflicts of interest do exist in the space already. And I think it's a very good point. You, you bring them something we should kind of worry about and yeah. take into account, yeah. The thing I want to bring out, Corey, you say you don't care. I want, I want to tell you my experience, and I, I'm struggling. It's like one of those things you build an intuition for, but you can't remember the exact reason why you have that intuition. But in, in the 18 years I've been in this space, early decisions like this tend to have long-term consequences. And so asking these sort of questions, what is our philosophy on how we support third-party technologies is a very meaningful question day one. Um, once it starts getting traction, of course, I consider that to be one. Everything else is zero. <laughs> Everything before that is zero, zero to one. So once you're at one, um, it's, it's, does, that, does, that, that personal philosophy of development, how are we going to support other technologies? Is it going to be through encouraging them to build their own plugins, interacting with them directly, but they're in control of it? Are we going to directly support it a la certain Java models? Um, uh, are we going to, um, are we going to encourage, you know, how easy are we going to make this for ourselves and how easy are we going to make this for the community? That's really the opinion question, you know? Um, and yeah, I think it's an important philosophy question, philosophical question when developing a framework like this. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we, we do try to make everything plugin based. So even the plugins that are internal, you can override them completely. So let's say that IPFS the internal IPFS plugin uh, was not to your liking. You could include a plugin that would just completely override it. And yeah, it's so it's true that we 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 do have some default plugins, and which I guess in a way does um, yeah, it does emphasize some technology over the others, although it's not necessarily in intentional, but. Yeah, I get it. And it's early in yeah. court to Corey's point. It is early and there's limited options and yeah. you want to gain traction. You want to get onboarding. So the, the, the there's, there's definitely a balancing act there. I get it. Yeah. But like, you know, you know, yeah, that's why you have distractions, you know, identity, yeah. identity is yeah. a great case. Do you want to support Uport? Um, you know, okay, well, do we own the Uport plugin or does Uport own the Uport plugin? You know, this is kind of like, um, just, just a, Simple question. I was kind of curious to the answer for, and it seems like uh, you're kind of leaning in the same direction I am. Where it's, it seems like it's an important question to ask, but there's really no strong one case fits all answer. So, right. Yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah. what is the most interesting decentralized application you've seen so far built on framework, other than Status? Ooh, the most interesting. Hmm. That's a that's actually usable. Define usable. Define usable. Let's go with let's go with most I mean, interesting can... overall, and then what's your most interesting usable one? Uh, I mean, I uh, for for the reasons I, I explained early, uh, yeah, NAS is something I'm super excited about. That's I mean, that's definitely, I mean, that's one of the thing one of the reasons I I, I came into the space. 
uh, I entered the space, and uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to see that live. Uh, another one is the is the is MakerDAO, so uh, the die, uh, because just a few years ago that looked like all like a dream, uh, and I remember the Maker Maker guys when they were just uh, starting was just two people, and uh, the whole thing looked really really ambitious. So to see that live, uh, such a complex uh, project is just fantastic, and uh, I I generally like like. For me, the most useful are applications that are not necessarily related to to money. You know, like I I feel that for me that's the least interesting part of the, the this entire uh, space. So when it's preach something it. that uh, sorry, amen. Preach it, amen. Preach it. Sorry, I yeah, should have interjected. Yeah. Like, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. So yeah, when I see those type of applications that okay, actually the diet is money to be honest, but uh, but it still is like a more, it's a much more complex system. ENS is, is, has nothing to do with money and it's, it's something that could actually be useful for, for everyday uh, people. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I look, I look forward not to a future that uh, we actually own our data. That's, that's what I really hope now. I really hope that this decentralized systems allow us to, to create you know, some sort of system that we actually own our data, and and instead of companies uh, owning and storing our data, we just give them the permission to access it, but they, they can they don't really own it. And if we do, if we do want to give the permission to actually store that data, uh, then it has to be a very very explicit process that uh, makes it clear that yeah, okay, this guys have access to everything that you you own, and return of that it's free because you're getting advertising and things like that. You know? So that, that kind of, um, you, you obviously look into the future of, of how yeah. all this works. It's like, that's why we all got into this space is because not because it's there now, it's because we are on the frontier of something that we believe is to be greater yeah. than, than what things are, uh, than what they are right now. We see what's coming on the horizon and we see the birds flying and we know that when there's birds flying, there must be carrion that must be dead out there and we're going to go forge it again. I'm rambling. Sorry, but you know, that's, that's how early hunters work. They would see the birds flying and that's how they knew that they would go to that. Uh, sorry. That's a weird analogy, but the point is that we see what's coming. We know that this is happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just went to Jupiter for a second. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, um, the, the, the interesting things that are coming out deal with things like plasma chains and, um, side channels, general state channels, um, and um, uh, and um, and things like the beacon chain, where it's got one chain, but every there's many different shards, and you might need to focus on one particular shard. And that's just in, say, the Ethereum space. Although there are analogous things in other spaces, and that also so there's these technologies, and then there's also the possibility that there are other. F- consensus truth mechanisms which may eclipse ethereum in the future um right. things like cadena definity and now avalanche are all looking in cosmos like they're they're uh, they're they're all looking really like interesting ways of handling this truth uh trust mechanisms in a decentralized trustless way you know like um so uh, embark is a huge code base that is agnostic to which Ethereum network you're using, but what kind of migration do you think it will take? What kind of effort would it take if you wanted to use it on, say, a different type of chain, a different protocol entirely? Um, is that even possible with your current? And is that something that's on the roadmap? Yeah, because all those chains have right. shit for tooling, so you're going to need something that's going to help them out. Yeah, so, so it is actually on the roadmap, uh, because we want to be as agnostic as possible, and we also like good code, and and being agnostic also helps having a, a, a clean uh, a clean decoupled code base. So we we plan to support uh, things like um, like Tendermint, for for instance. And right now, the way it is uh, set up, and this is for historical uh, reasons, because. Uh, because Embark was uh, primarily a Ethereum framework, is not really possible because it's it, that part is pretty much very coupled to 
Web3GS and to and to Ethereum way of uh, of doing things. And we we plan to abstract that uh, much more. So in the code, we even we just call that blockchain. We don't even call Ethereum. So we just call the blockchain uh, stack or the consensus mechanism. Um, and but the way it is right now, yeah, it, it, you can't really use Embark with, uh, say, Tendermint or, or even on a Bitcoin or something like that. And we would plan to, to we plan to introduce that sort of abstraction so that's possible. And we're starting first with uh, making sure we support other clients well over in the Ethereum space. And afterwards, we will make sure that to extract Web3GS also. So people can use their own, can you say EtherGS and things like that. And once that once that, that is done, it would be much more easy to, it would be easier to support, say, things like Tendermint or other change, other change like maybe Cardano and things like that. So you got into this, you built this framework to help build better dApps faster and cleaner and yeah. easier. Yeah. You did this out of necessity, not just for the community, but for yourself. Yeah. What are your aspirations to use the Embark framework? So, well, it's also, it's, I also did it too, because I, I, I believe that if we decrease the, the entry of barrier, and we make we make it easier to build uh, complex things. Then the bar is raised on on what you can do, right? And uh, so, for example, we have this uh, very popular workshop, which is uh, how to do a decentralized Twitter, and it's really really easy to do a decentralized Twitter with uh, with Embark, and and that's something that just a few years ago would be really really complicated. But by making such a thing that used to be complicated very very easy, then it raises a bar on what dApps can can do. So a lot of that we focus on, on that's why we focus so much on supporting different technologies and making them really, really that simple to use because we want to see better dApps. We want to see the space uh, advance. I, so you're asking why my, some of my inspirations. I, I, so... Originally, I wanted to create a decentralized uh, market. That's what, what I wanted to build. And But then I got so busy with Embark, and, and that pretty much takes all my time and developer tools, other type of developer tools, such as the as debuggers, uh, that uh, I, I've, I unfortunately, I just don't have time for anything else. Uh, I, I do have some projects on the side, like, say, decentralized Reddit, um, and with some experimentation with repetition, uh, uh, different repetition uh, uh, mechanisms, but I don't have a particular DAP I'm, I'm working on just because uh, Embark just takes pretty much all, all of my my uh, attention. Yeah, that all makes right. perfect sense. I think so, uh, you know, uh, I, I just briefly want to touch on something since you are the moderator of Trader. Yeah. Or a moderator of F Trader. Um, yeah, you guys just implemented a point system. Um, we, we what? You implemented this community, Sorry. this community sort of karma rating point system, uh, reward okay. system. Uh, is that built in a decentralized way, or uh, is that just still kind of a centralized, you know, Reddit bot? Uh, are you referring to the to the? I know you're referring. Sorry, because I thought you were referring to the dappening, which is like a project that we had to create. A, so, no, no, so no. There's, been, there's been, yeah. It's a recent development so, where you have uh, you're basically awarding points to people, and this to me sounds like right. a great way to just you know you know eat you know eat what you make, um, and it would have been a great decentralized um, sort of system. Is this a decentralized system, or you know, uh, how how did you guys build build that? So I, I'm actually not fully on par with the this latest one. I, I know it's something we we were working early last year was we were working in this uh, token, and that would have been decentralized, and that's kind of on hold for say uh, I think next year, uh, and and this token would have been a would have been an Ethereum token that you could just. It can almost do pretty much like upvotes and downvotes, but it would be on Ethereum, and 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 you would see also, you would see Reddit differently, depending of how much tokens that person had. And by tokens, I mean reputation, reputation, and that rep, and that reputation points would were assigned based on the existing karma 
or on the subreddit of uh, users. Because usually bot accounts, you know, you can buy an account, a bot account for, I don't know, with let's say 10,000 karma. It doesn't really mean much. But, yep. Or people can have a lot of karma just by posting in, uh, in some silly, silly subs. But to actually have a lot of karma on uh, on the Ethereum subreddit or on the AdTrader subreddit, that's actually quite hard. And we did some experiments that we we took uh, the amount of the reputation for specific users in in each subreddit and some controversial posts, uh, namely when it was back at the DAO, there was a lot of drama. Uh, we could see a, there was a lot of manipulation because a lot of a lot of people were clearly outside of the community. And it was, you were just coming in to just, just cause trouble. So we thought to use this to, and we have such a prototype that when you're connecting to, to the system, it actually changes the order of the comments on, on Reddit according to the reputation of the of the users. And this way, you, ideally, you get a better uh, idea of uh, what's real or what's a puppet account and, and so on. That's awesome. See, that's that's fantastic. I love that. Um, and, and that's done in a decentralized way or still just kind of a, a AWS instance scanning? It, it, it is in a decentralized way. We had some challenges. Uh, so the first challenge is, is, was that, you know, putting, I, I don't, I forgot not the amount of users, but there was like a lot of users. It was, I don't know, talking about uh, tens of thousands of users. Uh, to put all of those accounts in a contract, of course, is not really doable. It would cost a lot. Mm-hmm. Also, different transactions would cost a lot. So we ended up coming with this uh, solution. I think originally, actually, it was suggested by uh, Nick Nick Johnson, uh, which you basically can just do a Merkle tree, and yeah. you can just do a Merkle tree, and um, and and every everyone's uh, balances, and then. You can put it online, the entire tree, and make a tool that people, when they want to claim the tokens, they just generate their Merkle proof, and then they call the contract with the Merkle proof, and they get the tokens that are assigned to them. So that, that's the solution we uh, we implemented, and we were also taught to use that for some community, to, to sort of like the community to could make decisions, almost like a DAO uh, on the sub, uh, and that's something we're we're still kind of experimenting, uh, experimenting with, and we thought also to use say Aragon for that. But the, again, the challenge with Aragon uh, is that putting all those users in one go is not easy. But last last time I, I spoke to the Aragon guys, they were they were thinking to implement the same system with this kind of like a Merkle root, so people could do again Merkle proofs to to prove they are part of that DAO, and then they could vote. Yeah, when I saw that up, it was very cool, especially since it's actually just going to lay it out there. I, I, I moderate a few subreddits, and I actually wrote my own Reddit bot so that you can assign karma to other users uh, who had conversations with each other. And if they had made, you know, if there was a certain, sufficient amount of evidence they had an actual conversation, it would uh, allow them to assign karma to each other. And I found the same problem. Like, you want to have your own individual, like, karma s- system. And, you know, I had this, uh, a similar thought to you. Like, we need a decentralized Reddit. And I felt like, you know... Ethtrader being the proof of concept for how a uh, uh, sort of that that could come about a very early stage version of just assigning, you know, karma to net anonymous identities as an early proof of how this would kind of work is is just intriguing to me. So I was just kind of seeing what kind mm-hmm. of effort was going on there because it's just personally interesting. Yeah. It, it, it is a very hard problem, though, the repetition systems to do. Especially if it's uh, especially if it's supposed to be decentralized and objective, and the keyword here is really objective. It's really really hard. And all proposals I've seen, they always have flaws because they they can always fall into civil attacks. And uh, so one solution potentially can be still decentralized is uh, uh, what I call subjective repetition repetition systems, meaning that. Uh, you would see things differently depending on who you trust, and the weakness, I guess, would just would just be there of who you trust. So as long as you trust the right people, uh, you, this is not really subject to to civils. Uh, but then, but then I think philosophical the issue with that is, in my opinion, it's um, it's bubbles, right? It's opinion bubbles and selection bias. Yeah, you can really make um, echo chambers yeah. doing something like that. 
Sorry? You could really make echo chambers and something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think, so yeah, that's the big disadvantage of uh, subjective repetition systems is those, those echo chambers. And, and that's already a huge issue. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think I think we can start to wrap here. Is there are there any questions that um, you were hoping we'd ask you but we didn't get around to? Mm, not I can think of. Uh, no, no, I think we're good. Awesome. So how do how do people get started with Embark? How do they reach out to you? Um, how do they learn more? So we are yeah. So we have a Gitter channel. Uh, it's a it's a getter well, it's a getter uh, embark dash framework and uh, we are there and uh, the entire team is there and is help is ready to answer any questions uh, developers might have uh, the entire team will also be at the status hackathon in in Prague coming this this next month and we'll also be available for to interact with the community. And yeah, we're quite excited actually to to meet people that are using Embark and how they are using it and how, how we can improve that. Yeah, I kinda want, I'm kind of excited to see if anybody can come up with like great plugins um, that happen to be there alongside the hackathon if they don't want to work on um, creating things for status and everything, create things for Embark and just kind of, I, I see any anybody that comes to that hackathon and contributes to um, making something better that we do is is a is a win in my book. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, appreciate your time, and um, we'll be seeing you in Prague. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Right. Thanks, Brett. See you guys. Thanks.